Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Secret Service operates a broad range of applications for its diverse missions. The most well-known are guarding executive federal personnel and integrity of U.S. currency. But it also has its own cybersecurity requirements, for which it has its own security operations center. I spoke with the Secret Service's Chief Information Security Officer, Ray Luongo. In a wide-ranging interview, here's an excerpt. Because of that breadth of mission, it's actually a little easier to take the more traditional approach and then deviate from that. So, you know, we have a a pretty standard approach to our cybersecurity operations center. Above that, I have two sides of my organization. I have the IAGRC side, not as interesting as the SOC side. But on the cybersecurity side, uh, it's very traditional. I have a core group of federal employees who are my security engineers, all those traditional things engineering security solutions, integrating them, uh, developing tools as needed to do that. Then I have a threat hunting team that we're, we're still maturing, but I'm very proud of having to allow us to look for those non-traditional things that wouldn't be caught by the SOC implementation. Uh, and then my SOC is 24 by 7. Uh, it is an in-house SOC, but it's manned by contractors, but it's not an MSP, it's in-house. And that's pretty much our approach, you know. And just maybe a sense of the range of systems that you have to monitor through that operations center and maybe a overview of the inventory of applications, kind of the yeah. infrastructure and application side. We have a lot of the traditional business practice applications, right? Your ARs, your IT implementations for desktops and administrative stuff. But then we do have unique things that we have to pay attention to, things that might fall into OT for protective services, you know, robots, drones, airspace stuff, those type of things joint operation centers for national security events and things like that that do pose some challenges, right? Integrating with not just other federal agencies, but local law enforcement and local agencies like, you know, Department of Public Works and so forth in the large cities. So those things do provide us some challenges more from the integration standpoint than how we treat them from a security posture. From a cybersecurity posture, we try to treat them as much as anything else in our environment. So there is kind of a bridge in some sense between cybersecurity and overt security in the operational part of life there. Absolutely. There's two sides of that. There's the addition to traditional security. How can cybersecurity and visibility aids physical security? And then there's also just protecting those physical security IT tools. You know, their visualization tools, their uh, analysis tools. We have to protect those, too. So there's two sides to that, uh, how we augment them and then how we protect them. And just briefly, the Secret Service Security Operations Center is uniquely to the Secret Service. It's not a shared service situation with, say, other elements in, in um, DHS. I'm going to say yes to it is ours uniquely, but DHS has set up a, you know, a federated type cybersecurity program. So we have daily meetings with the DHS SOC. Our SOC sits in, as all the other SOCs do with DHS. DHS feeds us Intel, IOCs, other significant things down. And then we obviously have reporting requirements if we were to have any type of event or IR that you know was of a significant nature. DHS would, you know, from the government here to help. Right. Go on down and see what we could do. <laughs> Understood. And just looking at the world as it is, and it's a very complicated world with international and national threats kind of intersecting and the attackers getting more sophisticated and more aware of what's inside an agency or an organization so the phishing gets better. What do you see as the top challenges in 
making sure that the security operations center actually secures things and has got early warning of what could affect it. You know, know, it's interesting in one approach, my my question is going to be very federal or government focused, but I think it all comes down to data. And the problem with data is you either have too much or not enough at the same time. Either we have so much data that our SOC can't, and I'm speaking more generally, not my SOC per se, but you have so much data that you can't parse through it and analyze it in a timely enough manner for it to be actionable. So that's one problem. The other problem is, do you have blind spots and do you not have enough data to see what's going on in your network? So, you know, it's two sides of the same coin, but it's all revolving around data. So that's the biggest problem I think any SOC, including mine, will potentially have. The other part of that is how that equates to a federal SOC. I think sometimes we get mandates that require us to implement a strategy that may incur cost or may incur uh, the need for FTEs, et cetera, uh, but the timelines do not prescribe to traditional federal budgeting timelines. And I think that's huge. You know, If we're working on a three- to five-year budget cycle, but I'm told to implement something in the next six months or 12 months, I have to find ways to finance that or logistically support that. And that can be you know, some type of discretionary fund that I can augment or I can utilize, unfunded requests that somehow get magically approved at some level within the organization, or I have to rob Peter to pay Paul from the current budget to support that mandate. Uh, and that's a huge challenge I see across the federal government. Yeah, that's pretty much you name the program. Yeah. They probably have that issue. But getting yeah. back to the data and the possibility of just too much data, data overload, versus having blind spots. With data coming in from all of these different sensors and all of these different cybersecurity tools that you have operating, you must have kind of a meta set of tools on top of that to manage the data. How does that work? You absolutely do, and we do. It's all about data normalization, data minimization, right? If I can look for where I have redundant data coming from multiple sources, can I reduce that data set? Can I make sure I'm talking about the same data point across multiple disassociated systems by normalizing that data? And then we need to periodically look across our infrastructure and see if we have a blind spot. That can be from traditional you know, incident response exercises. That can be from some type of attack surface uh, detection system, some way to see if we're not seeing what we should. But I think the basis there comes down to data normalization and data minimization. And you must do this in conjunction, as you said, with the other elements, say, across DHS, because DHS might attract the same threats from multiple mm-hmm. sources in its multiple components. Well, absolutely. Now, you know, just because of the breadth of what we're talking about, uh, we do rely on DHS to aggregate our data up. Sometimes they'll ask us to normalize at our level, but sometimes they normalize at their level. But I do think it's imperative that they have insight into what's going on in my network, as well as my peer component networks, because as we all know, what one sees, the others may see. Uh, And it may be a subset, right? When we talk about IOCs for a given actor, those IOCs may change from target set to target set. But at some point, if a higher level can put that together and see it, we're all going to be better combined. And sometimes there is angst on on letting someone else come in and look at our data, right? But uh, I think it's incredibly important for that to happen. Sure. And how has cloud affected all of this? Cloud definitely exasperates the problem, right? Cloud takes our data and hopefully in a controlled manner, puts it you know, outside your physical perimeter in some cases, right? You know, if we actually take our data and we're doing any type of Fed ramping or anything like that, our data is literally leaving our physical perimeter, our data center, and going somewhere else. So we have to look at those controls, those logical controls, to make sure that we, one, have visibility into that, 
and it adds an obfuscated layer, right? The, all the virtualization layer of cloud is obfuscated. So we're actually hoping with some good indicators that that cloud solution is secure and our data and our processing and our tools are secure in that solution. So it's twofold. So we have to take a kind of a forked approach. I have to make sure my stuff is safe as much as I can. And I have to, with some level of you know trust but verify that the cloud infrastructure is also safe. Yeah, that gets complicated because I think under the service level agreements, often the cloud won't guarantee the security of your application if it's inherently unsecure when it's rendered in the cloud. Well, absolutely. And that's why, you know, as, as much as we don't, no one likes to talk about compliance, it's kind of an ugly word, making sure that we still maintain that, that same level of you know, whether it's a SaaS or, or an, you know, an IAS or PAAS, whatever that is that we're putting in the cloud, making sure that it has the same rigor that we do for our on-prem solutions. Because to your point, the cloud provider isn't going to guarantee the solution I put in there is secure. They're going to guarantee that their cloud infrastructure is secure. And that causes some angst because now some organizations, especially when we're talking about FedRAMP, they're making sure there's two compliances in place. And that can be painful. Right, because a given attack could say it gets a password or it gets some kind of administrative rights, whether that is a virtual system in the cloud or, say, in your data center somewhere, the effect is the same if they reach the application. Yep. No, absolutely. And you know, people like to talk about attacks in the context of someone's going to get my data. There's other reasons to do attacks. You know, my, my career, I've, I've been on both sides of this fence. And to understand that you know, if their intent is potentially just to perform a DOS, well, they can do that at the hypervisor level within a cloud solution if they have access to that, as well as doing it on the platform itself that I put up there. So sometimes we get so focused that our attack is data-driven, you know, they're coming after our data. That may not be the true intent. Right, yes, because you do have that operational component to the agency, and if they can disrupt that, they could potentially do more damage to the nation, really. Absolutely. My guest is Ray Luongo. He's the Chief Information Security Officer of the Secret Service. And let's talk about certifications. A few years ago, there was a big drive, you know, from various nonprofit bodies to push certification. And a lot of the equipment vendors and software vendors had their own sets of certifications. How valuable do you consider those? Do you look for people to be certified from the contractors that are working in your SOC? Yeah, so absolutely. So my career has allowed me to be involved in workforce development, including in coordination with some of these certification bodies. And, you know, certifications are nothing but an indicator of a potential skill, right? I'm saying, hey, if this certification is held, that individual at least at some point met or exceeded a certain set of KSAs. You know, whether they can apply those or not is, is a different conversation. So when we look at certifications, and we do it both with our government employees as well as with our contracted vendors, what we're really doing is buying down some risk. We're saying, hey, if we start at this certification level, there's a level of assurance that they know certain things that I don't have to train them or not. So with contractors, absolutely, because I am paying a contractor to bring in a skilled person at a certain level. That's the end of that conversation, in my opinion. Now, if I retool or if I revamp my SOC in a way that changes that certification, that's a different conversation, right? But with federal employees, I think it's really important to understand that that cert is just an indicator. And as part of good workforce development, I need to provide opportunities for people who may not need a cert today, but have a career path that may in the future have the opportunity to achieve that cert. So they're ready to take those higher roles. 
for those contractor employees, though, then you do require certain certifications at the kind of a table stakes. Yeah, there you know there are obviously some that are mandated. Certain privilege levels must meet certain have certain criteria. I think the best way to approach that is make sure we never solely focus unless it's truly a specific technology, but give multiple potential certifications that'll meet that KSA or that knowledge set goals. You know, to say I don't want to call out anyone over individually, but saying you must have this particular cert versus one of these three or four will meet the criteria. I think it's better to give that breath. Right. And it's something of a leap of faith, though, to use contractors in such sensitive roles because they do have administrative rights to some degree to your systems, fair to say. Yep. No, absolutely. But doing good privileged access management uh, overseas that some people disagree with. But I have this philosophy about employees. If I hire someone in, whether it's a Fed or a contractor, if they're performing a work role, it's the work role that's my focus. Now, obviously, there's things we can't do depending on the scope of the contract or certain legal requirements about what we can and can't discuss with contractors, those type of things. But if I'm paying a SOC employee, I I personally don't want to limit it by the fact that that employee is a contractor or a federal employee. They're doing a job. They need to have all the tools to do that job. And if that includes elevated privileges, I have to provide trust you know, in, in that person to do that. Sure. And I wanted to get back to one question with respect to interagency cooperation. And we talked about how the Secret Service SOC interacts with the DHS SOC and the component SOCs across Homeland Security, and there's regular communications. But, you know, one time Secret Service was in Treasury, and a similar role-type agency, you might say, is the FBI. Do you have cross-departmental cooperation or information sharing of any kind? So so we do at a more informal level. You know, there is no problem with me reaching out to any of those organizations for recommendations, information, or anything like that. As far as a formal relationship, that's more handled through DHS, you know, department to department versus component to component. There's never a limitation on being able to pick up a phone. And what about the relationship with operational elements of the Secret Service? So, for example, suppose there's a major presidential trip, and that takes, you know, Lord knows how much communication and planning and detail work. And you have to look outward, you know, from a small circle to see what the threats are. Is there information that is worthy of sharing or is it necessary sometimes for the operational elements who are searching the Internet for things that could morph into a threat somewhere and the Security Operations Center for the routine cybersecurity work that you're doing? Yeah, no, absolutely. Our, our criminal investigation division is, is very robust in informing of those, those outlook-looking things, you know, as well as the other elements. But the other elements, those are kind of it, like not not it, but like the SOC and our criminal investigation division, those are kind of those more cybersecurity-focused ones. They see it more from uh, what are criminals doing, and that does feed us. And then between us and them, we feed the rest of the organizations. It's not to say that if an org- one of those other teams was doing their mission and found something, absolutely we'd be informed of it. And probably vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Whenever the teams go to do, whether it's presidential protection details or whether it's a national security event, especially the national security events, we have personnel on the ground with that team coordination as an integral part of making sure they have a direct line to cybersecurity. All right. And let's talk about tools for a moment, because agencies probably have too many tools. Most of them say that, and they wish they could be more efficient at using the ones they have. Maybe there's 99 other functions they haven't signed up to. Are the tools and the tool sets the Secret Service choices, that is to say the contractor that's operating the SOC, will work with whatever tools that you feel as the CISO are in the best interests of the agency? 
I hope so, because that's what we're going to tell them to use. But, you know, there's a double-edged sword, right? If I have a, a statement of work that has contractors at a certain scale, and if I go too specific on what I need them to know, you know, we talked about this a little earlier with certification. If I bring in a new tool, I have to understand that, you know, if the statement of work doesn't say you must supply people that know X tool, I have to figure out how to integrate that. I have to provide that. I think a lot of times we forget that we're bringing in the newest and greatest tool, but integration will have a productivity hit. And too many people forget that. They want a turnkey solution, which is great, but that doesn't mean all the employees, contractor or fed, are going to be as turnkey as that solution is going to be. So we have to understand that there is an integration period that incorporates the people and that skill set, not just the technology into our solution. And if the contractor were to say, well, we see what you're trying to do, but if you use this tool, it would integrate much faster and we would be more efficient or whatever the case might be, you're open to that also. Absolutely. I'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't take advantage of those cybersecurity experts, too. One reason we hire, to this point, we hire contracts is they can fill an immediate cybersecurity need for me. If I didn't listen to their experience, where they're hopefully in other places, both civilian or corporate and govy, I'd be missing a huge resource on doing my job to analyze the solutions. And with respect to the systems that are of record, say the operational systems or the IT systems owned by the CIO function or owned by the different operating parts of the Secret Service that have their own enterprise applications, who has the authority to, say, stop them or interrupt them if there's a cyber threat? Can the SOC do that or do you have to alert the program owner and say, hey, we see some, you know, activity there that could really threaten this application? Yeah, there's, there's a good, it depends on that answer, right? Um, it depends on the level of threat. Uh, but the ultimate authorizing official, which is uh, the CIO, Kevin Nally, he has the authority to do those things. Depending on the threat, you know, the tier one SOC personnel has, you know, by design, limited immediate action, but we have an elevation process. Obviously, the grand friction between operations and security are going to have to come into play. And that's a decision, you know, I'd have with Kevin Nally. But, uh, Anything as far as impacting true operations, not just the day-to-day functions, that would go up through Kevin Nally, the CIO, to the director. And do contemporary SOCs have any outbound role at all? Say, maybe they want to attribute a source to what is an attack, or do you leave that to other elements? So I think we would definitely provide feedback to that. And my threat hunting team may have some in their kind of threat intel role. I tend to be of the mindset that attribution and that type of uh, aggregation to a campaign needs to be a higher level, and I would probably engage DHS on that because they would have that breadth of scope. My SOC, nothing against them, they're wonderful, but their focus is here. To truly build out a campaign or divide uh, you know, ultimate attribution is something I don't really want to put on them. I have a philosophy on attribution, unless we're going to demarch them, blow them up, or sue them, I just want them out of my network. So I don't want my tier one SOC imposed in that level. Uh, I would bring that up higher. Anything else people need to know about uh, what's going on with Secret Service SOC or best practices in SOCs generally? I think there's a lot going on in cybersecurity these days, and I think there's a lot of things going on generally with IT and and, and cyber as a whole. Um, One thing I would ask people not to do is be too afraid of AI. Embrace AI. We need to get to a place where AI can be a tool, you know, and as any tool, it, it can be used for ill or good. I think from cybersecurity, we talked about data and so forth. I think from cybersecurity, AI has the ability to parse through more data faster than a human can. So that minimization process can be really 
aided by AI. Uh, so AI and things like natural query language will really bring cybersecurity forward, in my opinion. Yes, and you need to make sure you know what is really an AI application versus what is simply an automation application or even a predictive analytic application may not be full-blown AI. Absolutely. I envision a fully trained AI language model focusing on federal cybersecurity data. That's what I wanted to learn on. I wanted to understand that. And then I want to be able to query it with native language queries versus having to know SQL or KQL or pick your querying language. Uh, that, that's where I think we should be going forward with cybersecurity. Ray Luongo, Chief Information Security Officer at the Secret Service. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's... Um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. 
And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this 
particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? 
So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.